I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was Thursday, the 27th of March, 1997, and Mark Geyer's Perth Reds took on the Rams at Adelaide Oval. Geyer was playing his best football in five years and was on the verge of a return to representative football via the New South Wales Tri-Series squad. It was a return that would never be realised as an eye-gouging incident against Adelaide's Chris Quinn threatened to end his career. In a troubled year for the Reds, Guy would not be the only bad boy to cause problems in the West. This is part two of the Telstra Cup, the 34th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, awesome. Top of the morning to you. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Uh, part two of our 1997 Super League season recap. In part one, we discussed the rapidly unravelling situation at the Auckland Warriors. So we're going to focus on a much more stable entity in the Perth Reds. Great feedback on last episode. Um, very interesting stuff. Gives you an insight on how hard it is to run a rugby league club. Yeah, totally. And I think having the Cowboys and the Warriors both together in that episode kind of shows you like how important it is to get things right from the outset, to have a stable administration. It just struck home that they're always chasing their tail regarding money or fixing the last regime's problems. Like Until you get on the front foot, you've got no chance to success. Exactly. And so today we're going to be talking about a club that was on the back foot from the very start. In a later episode in the season, we'll discuss their ultimate demise. So that's not going to be the focus of this episode, because when you look at the on-field happenings and, you know, off-field stuff in terms of the playing personnel, there was just that much going on at the Perth Reds in 1997. So they started the season in a bit of flux. So uh, Brad Mellon had been sacked as CEO. He just missed out on being the first CEO sacked for season 1997. Uh, Ian Robson beating him at the Warriors by a week or so. So that's a bit troubling in itself for Super League that two of their 10 CEOs had been sacked before a ball was kicked. (laughs) Usually it's the pool to see which coach gets sacked first, not the CEOs. Yeah, so very concerning that you can't make it out of February (laughs) without a a full set of CEOs still. Shocker. They also had a new coach with Peter Mulholland making way for Dean Lance. And there was, you know, various other destabilizing forces throughout the year. So for a start, there was their home ground, the Wacker, which wasn't an ideal place to be playing rugby league. It's barely ideal for cricket. Yeah. Rugby <laughs> <laughs> uh, one interesting thing on that was talk of them relocating to Burswood Dome, which was an indoor arena where the Perth Wildcats played. They thought they could reconfigure it for rugby league. Can you imagine how much of a hard-on John Rebo would have had for that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
Let's get some AstroTurf. I don't think it progressed very far, but it's a bit of a sliding doors moment if it had got up and we had an AstroTurf stadium in the 90s. Like, would it have just been a disaster or would we have seen a trend starting to emerge? It's one thing to wear douchebag gloves on the field, but to play indoors on AstroTurf, that's not yeah. going to be league. <laughs> Uh, But that didn't happen. A a lot of talk about relocating to Melbourne for 1998. So all throughout the year, there were just all these things going on that would have made it hard if they had a settled, stable squad, uh, which they very much didn't have. So it was a bit of a nothing season for the Reds. They finished one game off the wooden spoon. Appalling crowds, no money. That's a story for another day but just not a good year all round. So they started well, six wins from the opening 12 fixtures before uh, going on a slump on the World Club Challenge Tour of England. So using the World Club Challenge to play yourself out of form is a (laughs) fairly impressive feat. Absolutely. (laughs) Do you think it's the amount of travel, you know, just because they were traveling all the time in the regular season, plus another England trip now? Oh, yeah. It must have just weighed on them, surely. Yeah, that would have to be a factor, you'd think. But the story of the Reds in 1997 really comes down to a triumvirate of bad boys uh, and or reformed bad boys that they had on the books. So uh, this was Scott Wilson, Mark Geyer, and Julian O'Neill. And at the outset, what I really liked about reading all the research from this year is the fact that at various points, each of them were providing advice to one of the others. (laughs) So uh, Mark Guy to Julian O'Neill said, you have to stop blaming people for your mistakes. I know what he's going through because I kept blaming other people for what was going wrong for me. As we will hear a bit later, I don't think he was done with blaming other people for his (laughs) mistakes. (laughs) All three of those guys are just such natural footballers and they just scream rugby league and I, I love them all as players. Yeah. It's a shame that um, it was only really MG that sort of turned it around. Well, I, I mean, I think Scott Wilson definitely did and we'll get into him on field shortly, but I really liked this uh, statement he had. This was advice that he gave to Julian O'Neill. I've been through a bit and Julian asked me last week what he should do. I told him just stick to footy. He's a great player. I can understand the situation he's in. Sometimes if you have a reputation, you get found guilty by association. Unfortunately, your past follows you. Reputations don't worry me anymore. I gave up worrying about it a few years ago. And what really struck me about that statement was the idea of reputation. And I think for each of them, that manifests itself in different ways. So Wilson he, by this stage in 1997, made peace with his past and his reputation. You know, he made peace with the fact that he couldn't live down his reputation. Mark Geyer, on the other hand, many of his troubles had come from trying to live up to his reputation, which he was just starting to realise that this was causing problems for him. Julian O'Neill, meanwhile, had so little regard for his reputation that I'm unsure if he was even aware of the concept. But so let's turn to Scott Wilson first. So he had quite a long rap sheet. So he'd been sacked from South Sydney and North Sydney for failing drug tests. He joined Canterbury and that was probably, in terms of on field, he was looking like a superstar. Won their player of the year in 1993, really went on with it in 1994. But then... He's a gun, man. Oh, when we did our 1994 season recap, I was going back and watching a lot of Canterbury highlights and Scott Wilson was just outstanding like he was a super player just how i perceive him is just innate class absolutely but then unfortunately he kind of fell out with 
Bulldogs management, ended up in court with them, then headed over to Salford, and it was just a bad situation. So Gary Jack was the coach there. He got sacked, and it wasn't the right time or place for him to arrive. So he came back to uh, the Gold Coast briefly, spent the first half of 1996 with the Coogee Wombats, just playing park footy, and by his admission, I was a pissant last year. I got hammered every week. You know the Wombats training regime. I didn't get that. Does it mean they were training really hard? No, I think the training regime was, you know, forearm workouts at the pub. Oh, right. Yeah. I thought pissant meant small. Well, I, I think it kind of does. I think he's <laughs> misusing the phrase. So so maybe we can bring that in. <laughs> A piss ant in reference to alcohol. <laughs> My favourite term is piss wreck, which I've been called a few times. But, um, <laughs> the uh, piss ant, that's a new one. <laughs> so he was sounded out by Steve Rogers, who was there uh, in administration at the Reds, to come over. And he kind of like made his peace. And by 1997, was in really good form and seemed settled off the field. But by 1997, as I said, playing really great football, Combining really well with Matthew Rodwell, they made a great halves combination. Peter Jackson, his old teammate at North in the Super League magazine, said that he thought he'd been one of the best five players in the Super League competition. He was rewarded by making his New South Wales debut in the Tri-Series tournament. So he got it together. Like he made the most of, you know, the last chance. And, you know, unfortunately, circumstances prevailed and he was on the lookout for a new club in 1998. So he goes up to the Cowboys that couldn't nail down a spot, then was released back to the Bulldogs, only played a couple of games from them, you know, had injury problems, couldn't really get going. So he was part of a mini clean out at the end of the year. So it was just unfortunate that just at the, the point that he hit his career best form, it fell apart in Perth. He had some injury problems. Clubs were already kind of like looking to slash the books as the salary cap was coming in and suddenly Scott Wilson is kind of cast aside. There's certain players that have that feeling about them that it's just going to go wrong somehow, you know. Yeah. James Roberts was the one. It's like, how long is it going to last this honeymoon period, you know, and Scott Wilson was one of those guys. It was just one thing after another. Yeah. Derailing him. But he'll always have those, you know, a couple of great years at the Dogs and a really good, you know, finish and getting that recognition via you know, New South Wales in Super League. So uh, yeah. it's kind of a happy ending for the Scott Wilson story. Well, he's been in the news again in recent years, you know, different misdemeanors. So he's yeah. really got it together off the field, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. It's one of those stories that you like to see. So it's a shame when it doesn't all work out. Uh, and one player for whom it definitely didn't all work out was Julian O'Neill. So I feel like every bad boy gets a story like this when he starts at a new club. So I'm just going to read this piece from the Super League magazine at the start of 1997. The former Bronco always felt right at home on the field, but perhaps the key to his form might well be determined by just how comfortable he feels off the paddock. That, along with his enthusiasm for the Super League concept, has O'Neill itching for the coming season. Which, it's all well and good to write pieces like that, but... By January 1997, he'd already shown through several incidents that he wasn't willing to make it a fresh start and get the most out of the chance he'd been given. Yeah. So it started well. So again, Steve Rogers was the one who brought him to Perth and Julian O'Neill was living with him for you know the first month or two. 
And Steve Rogers said that he was just a great bloke. He got on well with the family. He, there wasn't any problem. But, you know, the trouble started once he was left the Rogers house and was left up to his own devices. See, like to me, looking at him from the outside, A, just instills so much confidence when he's in your team. It's just amazing um, class as a fullback. But if you look at his background, like we're going to do, you know, tragedy in his life from day dot, I think he's one of those guys that like means well, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And let's get to it now. Like trouble and tragedy has just kind of followed him his whole life, starting with his mother dying in a car crash when he was five and his dad dying from a heart attack like less than a year later. So suddenly he's six year old orphaned. He goes to live with an uncle and auntie, then shipped off to boarding school. And I mean, you can't excuse everything that happened throughout his life and career as a result of this, but it's easy to see how this is going to have a destabilizing effect on someone. Well, I've got real sympathies for him, and I feel like a real prick because of our um, Grub 17 episode with misanthropic Australian comedian Luke Heggie. We're laughing and laughing at how funny his Grub antics were, and they are genuinely hilarious, but there's a reason for him, like, you know, so I've got real sympathies for him. Yeah. I don't want to go into it, but just with the tragedy of his daughter as well, yeah. you know, in the latter part of his career, it was just something he, it just followed him and it's just, it's just really tragic. You understand why a bloke wants to get blind, don't you? So, I mean, yeah. Like- <laughs> and I've known guys that, you know, just maybe didn't have a father in their lives and you can just see the impact that makes on a personality. So mm-hmm. it's ultimately, it's your responsibility to overcome those challenges, but it's easy to understand when people aren't able to. Yeah, and in saying that, all that agreed 100%, but Jesus Christ, what a rap sheet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So his grandparents came over to Perth with him to try to be that stabilizing influence in his life. And it was talked about in the press as this you know great thing that he had them with him and they were going to keep him in line and he'd have some kind of family and some kind of grounding in his life. But, you know, basically from the moment he got to Perth, it was trouble, you know, missing training sessions or turning up drunk, getting banned from various establishments in Perth, a drink driving charge in late 1996. I can really relate to the binge drinking problems, right? He's just one of those guys that booze and him don't mix. And, yep. you know, but he needed it for some reason to, you know, dull the pain or whatever. So whenever he started the booze, problems followed and it's yeah. just like a scientific reaction. It was going to happen. Yeah, totally. And that's what duly happened. So he was dropped for disciplinary reasons early in 1997. The club put down rules about his behavior. Later in the month, he got stopped. He was a passenger this time with someone who was charged with drink driving. So although he wasn't at fault, it's again just another incident that he's in the headlines because of. What does it strike you as amazing that he'd be hanging out with scallywags? Yeah. <laughs> And then in maybe the ultimate example of if you can play, you will play, (laughs) he was still really good on field so much that he was making the Queensland Tri-Series team. He made his Australian debut with the Super League test. But during that tour camp, he was getting up to shenanigans. Nothing too serious, but he was calling up the, you know, hotel reception and putting like food and drink on the bill of the team manager so it's not like the worst crime, but it's just like <laughs> you've had all these chances. You're in the Australian team, and this is how you carry on. 
But do you think that's a prank, like, oh, he'll find this funny or I'm going to get away with it and get a free piss? <laughs> it's hard to say. I'm sure it was late in the night and he probably didn't think too hard about it, but that happened. And then shortly after, he was with the Reds in Canberra and they were all back at the hotel. He decided to kick on to the casino, made his way back to his hotel room about 3 a.m., and then started calling up all his teammates on the phone to try to get some money or to give them their credit cards and PIN numbers. And so he's just as loose as they come, right, on the yeah. pins. But I tell you, I've never heard of a bloke more diametrically opposed to casinos than him. I mean, yeah, yeah. just awful. Yeah. It's rugby league, actually. Like, rugby league and casinos just don't go together. <laughs> Well, you can say that, but I think half the evidence for that comes directly from Julian O'Neill. So. <laughs> but so that incident, all right, maybe it wasn't a sackable offence in its own right, but it was the last straw for the Reds. It was just little incident after little incident. So the club insider said, I don't think it was one big incident, more a series of smaller incidents that have got him offside again. And that was it, a $2 million contract torn up. And it was kind of telegraphed from the start. So friend of the show, Murray Croft, actually said that uh, he heard Peter Mulholland speak at, uh, you know, some function a few years ago. And Mulholland talked about the importance of like building the right culture at the club and how he wanted to get all the right pieces in place. And then kind of, you know, it wasn't his decision. Next thing he knows, Julian O'Neill comes into the team and it's kind of, you know, undoing all the work he'd done. Well, that's the thing. You got a guy like him, universally known as the best bloke in rugby league over 100 years perfect piece to build that culture, but he comes in in the middle of a civil war when you get scraps thrown yep. for your roster. So yep. can't be helped. Yeah. And so that was it for Julian O'Neill in Perth. It came time to search for a new club, and basically there was no interest from any other Super League clubs. He'd already been sacked by the London Broncos, so it wasn't likely that he was going <laughs> to head over to England. There's only one place for a guy like O'Neill at that time of his life, and that's the south of France. Yeah. (laughs) So basically, without an English or a Super League option, his management turned to the ARL. And again, his form was still good, so there was going to be interest. Gold Coast was a predictable candidate, but they ruled him out, you know, unless he was going to be bought for very cheap. Think about being in the position of a club to go, right, we're so desperate for talent. We know this guy's going to just cause ultimate problems. But, yeah, we're keen. When you talk about desperation, the actions from South Sydney in getting Julian O'Neill are are just ludicrous, that they actually went through with it, that they couldn't see the trouble they were getting themselves into. And that came before he'd even signed with the club with his manager, Greg Keenan, in talks with South and uh, various other clubs at the ARL before it came out that Julian O'Neill had actually signed a management agreement with another agency and Keenan wasn't you know, legally able to represent him. I just love this from Julian O'Neill. So the agency firm Karras and Karen Donis, which were pretty big players at that time, they came forward and said, we actually you know, he's on our books and Greg Heenan has no, uh, you know, right to be managing on his behalf and produced a letter that Julian O'Neill had written to them saying, I would like to reassure you of our arrangement and my integrity towards building a mutually beneficial partnership as my agent. So fairly cut and dried there. Yeah. 
Uh, but however it worked out, they managed to work out a deal. Greg Keenan went on to represent him in, uh, firstly, Souths. So Souths put in an offer, but he didn't sign it quickly enough. I think he was trying to see what else he could get. So they withdrew it. At that point, Manly entered the equation. So there was a lot of talk about O'Neill going to Manly. This got one Ken Arthurson quite upset. So he was out in the press saying, I don't believe in buying other people's problems. I also think signing O'Neill wouldn't have done much for Manly's credibility. The public perception is that Manly sign all the big name players and the club's critics would have had a field day. And do they need him anyway? Craig Hancock is doing a great job. All due respect to Craig Hancock, who's a step up in class <laughs> with Dylan O'Neill, but yeah. I think he's right. Why yeah. would they want to buy other people's problems? Oh, I think that is something that clubs should keep in mind more often, buying other people's problems and the problems you cause for yourself in doing that. Uh, but one thing Arthurson made very clear was that he was not the one that stopped Manly from signing O'Neill. So he said, I would have been bitterly disappointed had Manly signed O'Neill, but I had nothing to do with it. The Manly board didn't consult me. They did what they believed was in the best interests of the game. I'm sure that's very true that Arthurson wasn't consulted, but do you think there was a single person on the Northern beaches not aware of <laughs> Arthurson's opinion of the matter? Well, if we know anything from Rugby's history, is that Manly ever just an airtight boardroom yeah. with no <laughs> external commentary? <laughs> Uh, but regardless, whether it was Arthurson's influence or not, Manly pulled out. And so it was back to South. So at first, they weren't overly keen on signing him, mainly because of his statements. So he said in the press that he didn't want to join the team because the team wasn't of a high enough caliber, which <laughs> to me, that's enough right there. If I'm South, I'm saying, okay, well, he's not going to have the right attitude in coming to our club so presumably he did that to exclude himself from that team and then that was his last option in the end yeah exactly and then he originally then tried to sign a deal just for 1997 and the one smart thing that South did in this whole situation was to say no to that uh, Frank Cookson their football manager said we didn't just want to sign him for this year we didn't want to ease the pain in his pocket this season so we could go somewhere else next year we're trying to build a club so where do you stand on that signing by South? I mean, they were in dire straits. Uh... Yeah, I mean, we can't forget that. They were just a mess of a club with basically no-name players. You can't blame them too much. And and Frank Cookson had you know taken over from Alan Jones as football manager, so doesn't have the same pulling power. Not that Jones's pulling power brought anything of note. So I'm not going to crucify them for signing them. It's the way they went about it in every respect that shows their incompetence. Well, there's two things in rugby league I love about the culture of rugby league. People, rugby league men is, um, you know, everybody's ideas will get heard if you're an ex-player. You can come out with any sort of idea 20 years after you've left the game and it'll be heard publicly. And then secondly, they will never give up on a redemption arc. Yeah. You can do whatever you, you want in the game, torch 10 clubs, mate, you know, we can save this kid. And they always believe it, you know, it's really sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is a kind of, you know, naive sweetness to it. It's just a shame how often they get burnt by it. It's not the most productive uh, strategy, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so not the most encouraging words from O'Neill and his management after the deal with South was announced. So Greg Keenan came out and said that he'd accepted the deal because he didn't want to go to England. And 
then O'Neill said when he arrived that I only knew the names of about four players, but I was very impressed with their enthusiasm and commitment. <laughs> Condescending, sir. I mean, I find it hard to believe that you play in a professional rugby league competition and you don't know the names, at least, of the first Yeah, group, yeah. So. <laughs> so that's alarm bells from the moment the deal was announced. As soon as he arrived, there were, again, instant indiscretion. So he was turning up to games with, you know, an entourage of young ladies. There was one incident where one of them decided to, you know, relieve herself outside Redfern Oval overlooking the... <laughs> the league's club. So apparently the event was witnessed by about 500 people. Early on in the piece, there was another casino incident at, you know, the Star City Casino. South decided to not take any action about that because their investigations revealed the matter was not serious. Also not a good look. Yeah, like which is fine. But when you're dealing with Julian O'Neill, any incident at a casino becomes a serious problem. And then it got worse soon after with Julian O'Neill missing training. Uh, He blamed it on feeling sick and then ended up getting a doctor's note, but that didn't put everyone at ease. So Daryl Trindle came out and in the press and said that the players were really angry at O'Neill and it wasn't the first incident and something needed to be done. What's funnier than Tricky coming out and saying, pull your head in? Yeah, yeah. But then the club actually castigated Daryl Trindle and said that he shouldn't have been out in the press talking about O'Neill. So it was tricky that was getting in trouble for it, which I think is another sign that the culture was probably the worst situation for O'Neill to end up in. I don't think Frank Cookson was the ideal guy to be overseeing the whole operation. So when they were talking about signing him and were asked about his disciplinary problems, Frank Cookson said, We've got a few rough diamonds here ourselves. That doesn't worry me at all. The only thing that concerns me about the whole situation is the attitude of the players towards him. That club hasn't seen a diamond polisher in <laughs> 25 years to that point. but Yeah. Ken Shine kind of affirmed Cookson's statement saying, Julian says he's a saint compared to some of the players here. <laughs> oh, that makes it all right then. Yeah. So do you think we've gone through the reasons for our sympathy, but there seems to be a bit of like either willful blindness or pure arrogance to his behavior. You can put it down to he's just bad on the drink. But yeah, but, no, but the attitude of like, oh, well, that's that's what comment. I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Like there's enough incident sober and enough like evidence that he just had no regard for his career and there didn't seem to be even an attempt to make the most of every chance he got. I mean there's a chance that it's self-sabotage for some mental health issue you know Mm. that's possible it seems that way to be quite frank but yeah unless he's just that dumb or something yeah act like that and i don't know if a stable culture would have helped him it didn't help him at the broncos but an unstable culture or a, a culture that was just willing to have him out on his own and see what comes of it that was definitely not gonna be ideal so south refused to impose a no drinking clause in his contract Frank Cookson came out and said that all I can say is we aren't our brother's keeper. Bringing the bra boys into it is a yeah. big <laughs> Well, I guess it is South's. But this is the ultimate example of wishful thinking of South's just hoping it would work out. Cookson said, if Julian wants to have a drink, then that's fine. But I think he now knows when to call it quits. <laughs> and then he went on to talk about his abilities and then asked a rhetorical question. I just wonder how good a player he could be if he cut out smoking and just drank in moderation. 
Think about that. There was like a good percentage of players in that era still like smoking 20 a day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's crazy in itself. But just the football manager going, oh, I wonder how good he could be if he cut out smoking and just drank in moderation. Like, uh, that's fine if you're two blokes at a pub talking about Julian O'Neill. But when you're the football manager of his club, <laughs> it's not good enough to just wonder how good he'd be. It's... <laughs> But we've just been talking about it. You can lead a horse to water. Like he's been led to a, a number of streams. This guy. Yeah, I think just even that Cookson didn't get it. Like saying, if only he just drank in moderation. Like by this point, it was clear that moderation wasn't an option. Just alcohol had to go if he was going to make it as a player. I wonder what would have happened if they had the mental health um, focus that we have in modern times. You know, sent into a shrink instead of. Um having a meeting with the football manager and saying, you know, just have two or three. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you say that, but like we still see so much wasted talent, even with all the efforts we've made in that regard. So it's just really sad. Like reading this story, it just bums me out, you know? I mean, how good a player is he that with all these problems for his career, he's still remembered as a really good player. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But so on O'Neill, last what I'll say about him was an article that said, O'Neill's position now is more cut and dried than that of any other player in football. One slip up in his history as far as rugby league is concerned. It's just so crazy that that didn't end up being true. Yeah. But yeah, so, uh, you know, a comical but still sad end to his South career. Ended up finishing his Australian career, like, you know, fairly scandal-free at the Cowboys. You know, suffered some more personal tragedy, headed over to England you know, Danny the Dolphin, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think much has gone right for him since. It's just sad, basically. I mean, the Danny the Dolphin goes down as the ultimate rugby league incident. Yeah. A story that has a happier ending, and it's one we've talked about before, is Mark Geyer. The last time we talked about Mark Geyer was him kind of arriving at the Reds. Now we're going to pick up the story and follow his career and his you know, frankly, hilarious judiciary appearances over the course of his career. Can I just say how much I love him as a pundit? Yeah. You know, like his career to me is basically a two or three year career and the rest of it waste. It's like, I don't really remember much of it, but what he's become now to where he could have gone, mm. is such a wonderful story. To me, he's like the Australian Charles Barkley. He says exactly what's on his mind, unpretentious. You know, both of those guys aren't geniuses, but you know they're very entertaining and yeah. honest. You know, and I think with Gaia, it was just about you know emotional maturity and finding balance in his life. You know, once he sorted that out, he was going to be fine. But even in 1997, that wasn't looking like a sure thing. So he had a troubled 1996 with the Reds, getting a six-week suspension for bringing the game into disrepute. So 1997 started and we had the typical stories about him now ready to be a leader and he was going to lead from the front and he found that maturity and, you know, this was going to be a great year for him. On field, that was starting to be played out. So in early April 1997, Super League magazine through Peter Jackson reported that, uh, in Jackson's word, his form this year has been class personified. Mark's life has been well documented, but the responsibility of the captaincy plus the family seems to have settled the big bloke down to the stage where he's even giving Julian O'Neill advice about life in the spotlight. (laughs) I take MG's advice over Julian. Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately for Jackson and unfortunately for Mark Geyer, by the time that story was published, the 
incident against Adelaide where he was charged with eye-gouging Chris Quinn had already taken place. So basically, in that Adelaide game, Chris Quinn was tackled by Dale Fritz. Guy came in over the top, and in Chris Quinn's words, he felt a raking and pushing action on his left eye. Uh, And Chris Quinn said, the fingers didn't go into my eye because I closed my eye, but there was an attempt. Why is he worrying about it? You either eye gouged or you're not, you know what I mean? Well, this is the funny thing. So basically, the Quinn's sighting was supported by the Adelaide Club doctor who said that there was a skin abrasion near his eye. Video footage showed Gaia with his arm in the direction of Quinn's face, but nothing, you know, conclusive there. But just on eye gouging in general, this is uh, Super League judiciary figure Ian Callanan's definition of what constitutes an eye gouge in a rugby league context. He said it was an attempt to scoop out the eye with some force. Think about that. Like, based on that definition, how is an eye gouge not an automatic life ban? Yeah, I mean, um, you want to blind a bloke. Yeah. So after the Geyer incident, Les Boyd came out to, you know, give his summation of eye gouging. Finally a cool head. <laughs> he said, gouging is a stupid, crazy act. You realise later how stupid you were, but occasionally, <laughs> but occasionally you think back to when it was done to you. I remember when we had to play a test match on the Saturday and we were playing Canterbury the previous Sunday. A Canterbury player nearly ripped my eye out of my head. I later got a year and a half suspension for an incident in a game against Canterbury, and that was for an eye gouge on Billy Johnston. Just the way they explain away their psychopathic action. Yeah. I mean, how would you feel you're playing a game, right? A ball game, right? Presumably for entertainment and fun uh, and then money professionally. And then you want to blind a guy for the rest of his life to gain some sort of uh, reputation or advantage on the field. It's insane. Uh, What's insane to me, I can get Les Boyd giving his defense. I don't get how any journalist can read a statement like that and still go on with what a great gentleman he is off the field and, you know, you wouldn't meet a nicer bloke. Like, I don't care if he's the greatest bloke in the world. Like, (laughs) On the field, he's uh, Adolf Hitler. But um, looking at all this, the research you've compiled and my memories of the time, as psycho as Gaia was with his, you know, aggression and trying to smash guys, I don't believe he's got it in him to try and remove a person's eye. Yeah, I, I, I think that, I think that's definitely true. I, not for one second do I think that he was trying to scoop out Chris Quinn's eyeball. But whether what he did was enough to warrant the suspension that he ultimately got, I can't say. I, for me, like the attempt to scoop out doesn't even have to be confirmed. Like your hands shouldn't be anywhere near that area. I can see it being reckless and yeah. um, indifferent to damage or something like that. But I mean. Um... There's no way I can picture him going, I want to take this. Chris Quinn for all people. Yeah. <laughs> I want to take Chris Quinn's eye out. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. So basically, on top of the eye gouge charge, he was cited for a high tackle as well. So he went to the judiciary facing up to 12 weeks, which Reds chairman Stephen Edwards said, I had the misfortune to be sitting next to Mark as I added up all the points and worked out what sort of suspension he would be facing. So this was bad news for Gaia not just because of the time he'd lose on the field. He was facing a big financial hit because with his lengthy history, it'd been worked into his contract that he could lose $130,000 if suspended for 12 weeks. But I mean, the ramifications of losing over a hundred grand for a non-field incident, we're going to talk a bit about you know the fairness or legality of that. 
But beyond the financial hit, this very much put Gaia's career in balance. So Gaia said, I'm 29 at the end of the year, and what club is going to want a player who gets suspended all the time? South. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought at this point it would be worthwhile just having a look at Gaia's history with the judiciary. We all remember the big one, the Paul Hoff one, which was violent and insane, trying to take the guy's head off. Without that incident, do you reckon his reputation would have been anywhere near as bad? That's the big one. But part of that comes from his carry-on in the aftermath. And the we'll get into it. But I think by the time of the Paul Hoff incident, he'd already started to develop a reputation. This just solidified it. And then basically, with everything that happened in the years after, the Hoff tackle was like an exclamation mark. But it wasn't that on its own. Right. So by his own estimation, I'm no angel when it comes to judiciary hearings. <laughs> <laughs> the similarities between criminals and rugby league players, like the phrasing, I'm no angel, yeah. dogs, <laughs> cats, you know, they're exactly the same. So by 1991, by the time of that Origin series, he'd already been suspended twice. He'd been convicted of assault. And then at the end of the 1991 season, you know, suspended for using marijuana. So his career total of suspensions ended up being 34 weeks. So it was by no means a one-off. But I think he made a lot of this trouble with his statements in the press after these things. So, you know, after the Origin game, he was on the panel of, uh, you know, a Sunday footy show, the Channel 7 one, and Wally Lewis was on the panel. Guy was being interviewed, you know, remotely, and all the hosts asked questions except for Wally Lewis, who kept silent. And as they were saying goodbye to Gaia, he said, I'd just like to ask one thing. How come you didn't ask me a question, Wally? <laughs> Queensland coach Graham Lowe had called him a lunatic on the field, uh, to which Guy responded, I've got no time for that, man. He's supposed to be a cool, calm and collected coach. And yet here he is going around calling people lunatics. I was just overexcited. <laughs> there was a bit of aggression, but no dirtiness or thuggery. I was just over keen. I mean, you said it before about the emotional maturity, the forgiving your own behavior and condemning others is a major sign of that. Yeah. I really relate to him. Like, I grew up with loads of guys like him. Yeah. He's from poor Penrith area, wherever he's from, and Toronto, where I'm from. It's quite a similar sort of vibe. And until we get to about 28, we sort of behave like that. And you can sort of see it in his statements and this, like, reflective statements of he was told that, you know, he was a thug or he was whatever. And so he thought, okay, well, I'll be that then. And that was how he spent the early part of his career and not just on field. Like, you know, he'd walk into a pub and he'd be looking around to see like who could take him and, you know, just carrying this mentality around with him at all times. Cutting off your nose despite your face is a real rugby league Mm. ingrained mentality, right? Yeah. There's almost insecurity to it from these sort of areas where reputation means so much to people. It's like, you know, is he going to think I'm I'm a dog if I don't fight? You know, it's like... When you're 30, you realize how embarrassing it is. Yeah. And so even when he made his way back after, you know, the lost years at Balmain at Umina, gets to Perth and, you know, gets four weeks for an incident in, in 1995, he was told by the judiciary that they were giving him the benefit of a very large doubt in not suspending him for longer. 1996 was carrying on on the sideline, kicking chairs over, throws a water bottle on the field in the direction of the referee. <laughs> Gets suspended for six weeks for that. Um, and, you know, he was doing a, you know, like video link from Perth. Didn't realize he was on the screen. Gives the finger to the judiciary in Sydney. You can't excuse that, right? Like, I mean. No. And so he was called back 
to the judiciary by the chairman of the panel and, you know, was given a severe dressing down and then just started crying and said, you've just taken away six weeks of my life and probably another 35000 in match payments. What do you think? I've got a baby on the way. Have a bit of compassion. <laughs> I mean, the guy obviously had um, temper and emotional yeah. mental issues. And we go back to our tragic Ben Alexander episode, right? Compounded it all. But um, I'm sure when he looks back now as a well-adjusted adult, he's thinking, oh, no. Yeah. It was just a complete lack of emotional control and you know that kind of carried with him but it was the victim mentality that really stands out for me so after every incident so he was suspended in 1990 and said i just get victimized because of who i am they call me out as soon as anything happens after the origin incident the hierarchy of the game were the first ones to congratulate me and shake my hand after the match but next minute they turn around and cite me i'm amazed that's just total hypocrisy for the Paul Hoff hit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did he want? Just like a pat on the back and forget about yeah. it? Yeah. He said, I think it's dead set true I've been made a scapegoat. Yeah, you, you've been made a scapegoat because you were the only one who did this. There's a real easy way to avoid the scapegoat yeah. is to not break the rules. Yeah, exactly. Left out of the Origin team in 1992, you know, said, I don't know if they hold the marijuana charge against me, and then said, you know, I deserve to be on the bench. It's like I deserve to be there, like just a, the wrong mentality to have. That's what makes him so good as a pundit now. It's like saying whatever's on his mind, right? Yeah. But every player would have thought those things. Mm. The reporters are half to blame by ringing him up for rent quotes. Oh, yeah, like- exactly. Yeah. After the 1995 suspension, he asked referee Mark Oden if he had a personal vendetta against him. And I think that goes into this quote from Roy Masters. Perhaps Geyer is genuinely convinced of his perpetual innocence. He occasionally utters an inner cry for justice, which disarms and endears. And that disarming and endearing, to me, it's extraordinary, like, how willing people are to keep giving him chances, like, to the judiciary itself. So after the 95 thing, when they said they were giving him the benefit of a very large doubt, Jim Sullivan said, we are satisfied that you are desperately trying to clean up your act, as it were. And we don't want to ruin a career which we believe still has a lot to offer the game and your club. We know you've tried to rehabilitate yourself over the last couple of years and we have a great deal of sympathy for you. See, rugby league's got compassion. It's probably the most compassionate professional sport around. Mm. Unless you're like Les Boyd, Hoppawati or Danny Williams that just really go beyond the pale, they're not going to rub you out in inverted commas. They are going to give you like a chance. Yeah. Many chances. Yeah. I mean, even after the eye gouging incident, John McDonald in The Australian wrote, He's a long way past 21. A lot of people have tried to help him, and he really hasn't advanced very far. On one level, he doesn't deserve sympathy, but despite all his sins, Geyer is very hard to dislike, and the whole business is just really sad. You just got to wonder what would have happened without Ben Alexander. Yeah. Well, the thing about it is, and I think we mentioned it when we talked about that tragedy, that I think he was already on the path. Like, you just felt like something was going to happen anyway. Like, he was out of control off-field and on-field. Yeah, but then there's lots of guys like that too. I think that just pushed him over the edge to reckless endangerment levels. (laughs) I mean, it basically gave him no chance. And this was, like, quite chilling from Phil Gould. So this was a quote from December 1991. He said, I hope this never happens, but if something stopped him from playing this game tomorrow, I'd worry about him. Yeah, man. See... He could have been a 
a real bad statistic. Yeah. Um, turned his life right around. Mm. Great family man, all the rest of it. Great career now. With all the, the Gus hating we do on this podcast because of the commentary and the arrogance and all the rest of it, he's um, a good-hearted man uh, in many respects. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I don't have any actual, like, <laughs> you know, personal thing against Gus. I think he probably is a good guy. Just some of his actions otherwise we can criticise. Uh, one journalist who was not willing to give Gaia a go and was very wary of the endless amount of redemption stories written about him was Lisa Olson, the American journalist who we've talked about before. Imagine what she thought. Yeah. <laughs> Coming in from America, it's kind of like, what the fuck? So this was after the, the 1996 referee abuse incident. She said, I guess this puts an end to all those feel-good stories that seem to crop up every now and then. The ones that throw out all the tired cliches but give no insight other than what Mark Geyer and his apologists want us to believe, which is basically that Geyer really is a great bloke. A bit emotional, maybe, but terribly misunderstood. A quick recap. Geyer was a changed man when he went from Penrith to Balmain. He was a changed man when he left Balmain for the Central Coast, and a changed man when he moved to Perth. He was a changed man when he got married, had a kid, got a haircut, ate his lunch without starting a food fight, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we really need uh, journalists from outside the bubble yeah. in the game, <laughs> just for that perspective, because otherwise it's just all yeah fluff. But in saying that she guessed this puts an end to all those feel-good stories, vastly underestimating rugby league media's <laughs> love of a redemption story. So two months later in a John Getty's Daily Telegraph article, Volatile rugby league forward Mark Geyer had a good look at himself two months ago and didn't like what he saw. He finally admitted he had a problem and needed help. The explosive Western Reds forward knew that if he didn't do something, he would self-destruct and his career as a professional footballer would come to a dramatic and premature end. Uh, and in that same article, Geyer you know, admitted that he had, had a problem with his temper and said, when you admit it, you are halfway there, which I, I, don't, <laughs> I, I don't think quite halfway. So that brings us to the gouging incident and the subsequent uh, judiciary hearing. So he was found guilty. He got seven weeks in the end for the gouging charge, which seems light for an attempt to scoop out someone's eyeball, but, uh, and then another three weeks for a high tackle. Just the extra three for a laugh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this section's probably going to be a bit of a mess because there's just so many amazing quotes that like, I can't leave out any of them. So we're just <laughs> going to kind of go through them and, and hopefully it has some kind of coherence. But it starts with his defense. So he had two reasons why he could not possibly have been found guilty of eye gouging. Uh, firstly was the Greg Alexander defense. He said... My brother-in-law got eye gouged 10 years ago, and I spent a week by his side in hospital. Case closed. <laughs> you know, case closed, no more evidence needed, but he did give some more. Uh, and that was the Mark Geyer code. So he said, I'd never eye gouge someone. If someone did it to me, I'd stop the game and kick the shit out of him. Sorry about the language. <laughs> See, I actually believe in the Mark Geyer code. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, no, I think that's true. And, and I think that is why this one in particular really took him over the edge for a guy who spent his career feeling like a victim and you know protesting his innocence in this case he really believed it so his quote on that was for once in my life i was innocent that's the most frustrating thing about it <laughs> for once yes. <laughs> all the past uh, defenses were yeah. all based on bullshit <laughs> 
So he basically blew up in the judiciary hearing after he was found guilty. They asked him if he wanted to take it some time to gather his thoughts before they went on with the sentencing. But he said, no, get it over with. Just throw the fucking book at me, which they duly did. <laughs> uh, then was telling his representatives, I want to appeal to Mr. Murdoch. Do you reckon Rupert was keen for that? <laughs> uh, and then afterwards said, to be labelled an eye gouger, it's like being called a pedophile. I really do think it's that serious. <laughs> I would suggest that it's below the level of pedophile. <laughs> and of the, you know, the changes that Super League was going to bring, he said, new game, new image, fucking bullshit. <laughs> You know what? That quote there, I know it's only about this incident, but that sums up the <laughs> actual Super League experience distinctly. <laughs> totally. Uh, and then he felt that he didn't have any loyalty from old mates. So on the judiciary panel of three ex-footballers, which was Mal Cochran, Daryl Williams, and Cole Bentley, who was his former teammate at Penrith, of Bentley, Gaia said, he's a mate of mine. He obviously thinks he knows me better than I do. He thinks I'm an eye gouger. Um, but as it turns out, he may have got it wrong. So it was actually a two-to-one verdict between the three panellists. So I don't know which of the three panellists said not guilty, but it may well have been his old mate, Cole Bentley. Do you want ex-players on the um, judiciary that sort of take the oath to rule fairly to go, well, he's my mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, it's misplaced anger on Guy's front on a number of levels. But then as the verdict was handed down, he started to realise that the ramifications of this, he said, you're trying to rub me out of the game, uh, and then saying to the press that he's been bankrupted. So it was really starting to get to him. The funny thing is that Gaia's actions were, in some respects, restrained compared to his legal representative, which is uh, your old mentor, Chris Murphy. I loved reading this. I mean, you're not going to get an uh, unbiased opinion from me on this guy. I love the guy, but... He's the ultimate guy that you want in your corner when you've got a problem like that, believe me. And like, if you go to his website, he's got this quote, his manifesto, where it says something like, an advocate knows that he must save his client by all means and expedience, regardless of hazards to himself or others. Mm. So like, whatever the um, situation calls for, if it calls for eloquent intellectualism, he'll, he'll use that. And if it's a rugby league judiciary and it calls for a big stink, he'll use that if it's going to help the client. Yeah, and he actually used both of those tactics at various points over the next week or so. Definitely the latter in the actual judiciary hearing. So <laughs> I've got three versions of the same incident or the same statement. So I don't know which is true, but they're all great and they all add something different. So I'm going to read three different recaps of Chris Murphy at Mark Guyer's hearing. The first comes from Steve Mascord. Uh, in Mascord's words, Murphy said, I think you're incompetent, grossly incompetent. It's an utter joke, a disgrace, a kangaroo court and an idiotic process. I think having three football players decide this matter is a total joke. This is Mr. Murdoch's court. I don't know how much commercial interest is in this place, but I'm going back to the ARL. Goodbye. It goes without saying Chris was um, not a fan of Super League. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Greg Pritchard's version of events confirms that. He told the judiciary that, you take your paycheck from Mr. Murdoch. It's a disgrace. You're a Queen's counsel. I'm going back to the ARL. <laughs> and finally, Peter Frelengos's version. 
This is an incompetent board. I'm not going to sit here any longer. This is an idiotic process. This is Mr. Murdoch's court. It's not my court. It's a disgrace. You're a QC. I don't know how you can sit here and conduct such proceedings. And I don't know what commercial interests you have in them. I'm going back to the ARL. So we've definitely triangulated the I'm going back to the ARL line. (laughs) You can take your pick on, on the rest of the statement. His reputation in law, right, as a formidable figure is pretty much unsurpassed, especially in criminal realms. Mm. But like, so most lawyers will farm out the case to a barrister as the mouthpiece, right? Yeah. As professional mouthpieces. He'll get on his feet and do the fighting himself if necessary, right? Um, most times. Yeah. So even Queen's counsels are like often trembling when they're, when mm. they're dealing with him. And these are like the biggest brains in the business. Yeah. So I guess the only real thing he did against Gaia was to storm out of the courtroom after those remarks, leaving Gaia, you know, sobbing in his seat. Uh, and that was before the pie tackle hearing was read. So Murphy was gone and Steve Rogers had to step in to be beside him as the high tackle charge was discussed. But like there'd be some sort of method to the uh, yeah. behavior, you know what I mean? So like you want to talk about a memorable incident in pageantry? Yeah. Check that out. Yeah. Uh, but regardless... The Perth Reds weren't very happy with Murphy's conduct. They didn't want Gaia to take on outside counsel in the first place. So uh, Stephen Edwards, the chairman, said, I thought the way Mark's counsel acted was appalling. The club certainly distances itself from the comments he made about the judiciary panel and its members. How those comments furthered his client's case is beyond me. But I think Gaia was ultimately vindicated in going outside just because he needed someone that wasn't going to be afraid to argue about exactly, yeah. Super League's processes. And we're going to see how that played out. But, I mean, it's in the Perth Reds' interest to keep it all in-house, given who was, you know, keeping them going and what competition they were playing in. Well, we see with the money, we're jumping ahead here, but if you kept it in-house, you would have just been plead guilty and cop whatever they give you. Yeah, exactly. So let's get to that. So with the appeal, which was immediately announced that, guy would be appealing again the reds wanted him to let murphy go and they said we're not going to pay for chris murphy murphy came out and said i don't care if he doesn't pay he wouldn't be the first footballer not to pay me he does a lot of stuff pro bono for uh, various underdogs or whatever and then also the odd identity yeah and so murphy came out and said that you know in the first instance we'll appeal through the judiciary then there's the supreme court and the industrial commission who gets fined $100,000 because a bloke says he was eye-gouged and didn't suffer an injury? Give me a break. That's a fair point, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that industrial commission thing is interesting because it's hard to see such a fine being allowed, losing $100,000 for an incident that didn't cause any lasting issues. See, this is the issue with football-run judiciaries, right? No one wants guys that have never played the game and in inverted commas doing it, but if you've got guys that have played the game doing it, you end up with these sort of kangaroo yeah. court type situations. It's a fine balance, isn't it? So like, you know, remember early on, we talked about Steve Renoff going to the judiciary and feeling like he was in a real courtroom. And it's like, well, <laughs> if you want like, you know, fairness in hearings and due process, you kind of got to run it, you know, with lawyers and like a, an actual court. Well, rugby league as a collective is distrustful of due process everyone just wants to have a feel for it, how it should go you know yeah, I mean? yeah. Like, feels like eight weeks <laughs> so i think that would have caused big dramas for super league and the reds if it did go that far so in the first instance they rejected the guy's right to appeal so 
For the appeal to get up through the judiciary, uh, there were one of three grounds that had to be satisfied. Firstly, that the conviction was contrary to the evidence, that there was an error on points of law, or that the suspension was too harsh. So they rejected that appeal, uh, at which stage Murphy said that they would be taking Super League to the Supreme Court, which originally Murphy had, you know, talked about this big wide reaching case that, you know, was going to talk about the whole Super League judicial process. But the actual case that was put forward to the Supreme Court was much more limited. And I think David Gallup was pointedly referring to Chris Murphy when he said, I note that our judicial process, which was so heavily criticised by Mark Geyer's lawyer, is not the subject of the challenge. Well, since you identified him, I think you're talking about Uh, And so the appeal ended up getting withdrawn with Gallup again claiming victory for Super League, saying, The judiciary decision and its process was fair in every respect. The fact is the action was withdrawn, saving both sides significant costs. We believe that having lost the court action, Mark Geyer would have been left with a large legal bill. It was never our intent to further punish Mark Geyer for commencing legal action, which was totally devoid of merit. But I think definitely some kind of deal was reached. So in the end, Gaia was to be paid six of the 10 weeks that he was suspended. Super League, you know, came out, you know, were adamant that no deal had been done, that it was just standard policy that was now being affirmed. But Gaia in his contract had a different situation. So with the contract, and Stephen Edwards at the Reds, you know, had said in the first instance that he wouldn't be paid at all. So despite Gallup's, you know, maintaining there was no deal, whether it was just the Reds deciding it, it was clear that it was suppressed to stop further incident. And he took the 10 weeks, but, you know, was getting paid for six. This is what I want to bring up. It's like, see, he doesn't get Chris Murphy to represent him. He's now 60 grand or so further in the hole. Mm. He gets Chris Murphy. He has all this stuff for him. Yeah. Puts himself in harm's way by insulting QCs and whatever and, you know, yeah. doesn't care. Doesn't care about that. Yeah. Just help Mike Guy out. And now he's got 60 grand in his pocket he didn't know before. Yeah, totally. And when you say about, you know, not willing to cause personal harm, like having all that come out in the press and, you know, looking quite, you know, I don't know what the word is, but he kind of doesn't come across well, you know, in the judiciary hearing, but, you know, it helps Geyer ultimately. So Geyer took his 10 weeks and his career at the Reds was saved. As it turns out, his return from suspension just happened to coincide with the Reds playing the Rams again. So predictably, in the lead up to the game, Mark Guy was asked about his opinion of Chris Quinn. And again, these statements are subject to debate. Guy admits to making some of them. It was on a radio appearance, but says that he didn't say all of these things and it was all tongue in cheek. So of Quinn, he said, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't looking to get square. He lied and he knows he did. And I'm still dirty about it. I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to kill the bloke. I'd go the whole way. I'd have his head on a dartboard. Tongue in cheek. <laughs> <laughs> but all right, um, we've said that we don't believe that he did it intentionally. Why would Chris Quinn want to make up something like that to a loose cannon yeah. like Gaia who's going to have to play again? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so obviously he's felt something and he felt like it happened. Yeah. Otherwise yeah. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have said it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But to the tongue in cheek point i'm sure it was you know just kind of laughing around on the radio show and and saying that uh, but with some truth to it i don't think chris quint was you know getting a christmas card from mark Geyer. 
So in the end, it got sorted off the field, uh, and we're better to do that, but uh, on Sale of the Century's Battle of the Codes. So Chris Quinn just happened to be going up against Greg Alexander on an episode. So, <laughs> so they talked about the feud and got it all sorted. And Chris Quinn said, it was one of those things that happened, but it's all in the past now. I mean, out of pointless fillers, is it's one of those things that happened right up there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, you know, it has a happy ending. I, I haven't seen anything of Gaia commenting on Chris Quinn, but uh, of Gaia, Chris Quinn the following year said, I don't know the bloke that well, but it looks like he just wants to concentrate on footy and play to the best of his ability, and it seems to be working. He's done a lot more in football than I ever have, but he's probably like me in that we're both coming to the end of our careers, and he wants to finish on top. I've got no worries with Mark, and I'm sure it's the same with him. We both got on with life. And in the spirit of mature comments, can I just give a formal apology to Chris Quinn? He is actually the cousin of uh, one of my best mates. And when Chris Quinn was at the Dragons and decided to leave, I was telling my mate to tell him, tell Quinn he's a dog. He's a dog. So (laughs) I I would like to recant that accusation and and wish Chris Quinn all the best going forward. Well, I was just going to say, we talked about the Rams last week and we didn't mention him as a good Rams player, but he was one of those really hard-running wingers of that era. I used to love watching him play and you calling him a dog like your typical psycho Dragons fan. Well, I mean, part of it was like he was playing fullback a lot of the Dragons, and and I thought he was pretty good. You know, he was had the odd error in him, but I thought he was very good for the Dragons, and I, I was sad to see him go. So, um, yeah, I'm once again a fan of Chris Quinn. But so the game happens. Chris Quinn does not get killed by Mark Geyer, uh, but Mark Geyer does manage to get sighted in his first game back. <laughs> I had it in for him, definitely. Yeah, so for a tackle on Cameron Blair... You know, in the lead up, he said, this is it. I know I've said it before, but I feel as though it really is this time. If I'm suspended again, it will probably be the end of me. So I guess I'll be a bit wary. Cameron Blair did his best to get him off. You know, the old footballer's code. Blair said, I didn't think there was anything in it. I stepped and MG's arm came up. It was a bit of a slap in the face. Nothing more. It didn't hurt. And I got straight to my feet and got on with the game. Man's man. Yeah. So unfortunately, the judiciary saw it differently. Uh, Guy got three weeks for the suspension. Tim Sheens actually came out on his side and said, the question I asked when looking at the incident is, what would have happened if Andrew Weddinghausen or Laurie Daly had made a similar tackle? I think you'll find the answer is the referee would have pulled them aside, penalised them, end of story. No report, no three-match ban. As soon as the referee put MG on report, the judiciary felt under pressure to act, and the result was another unwanted holiday for the big fella. I know from experience with John Lomax, who's played for me at Canberra and now North Queensland, how a reputation can follow a player. To Tim Sheens, I'd say, is there a reason that it always is Mark Geyer and John Lomax and not E.T. and Laurie Daly? <laughs> um, so he gets the suspension, but thankfully, like, the Reds weighed the decision as a standalone incident. They didn't look at it in terms of the balance of in- incidents over his career. So Stephen Edwards said, it didn't indicate a level of unnatural aggression or conduct that would warrant terminating his contract. Very nice of them, but I mean, how many games did he bloody miss? I yeah, mean, I mean, 34 over the course of his career. Christ. 20 weeks in three seasons at the Reds were spent suspended. I mean, that's up there with Les Boyd level numbers. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think Hopper's got the record, but well, in NRL era anyway. But yeah, Guy is up there. <laughs> the old days, they used to give you 18 months and yeah. 12 months. <laughs> 
So I don't know whether they were just spooked by the industrial commission discourse from the first suspension, but the Reds chose not to act. Uh, And Guy did come back on the field towards the end of the season and had a happy ending to his Reds career in the World Club Challenge, where Matt Guy made his uh, first appearance alongside Mark, put up a bomb, which Mark Guy ran through court and scored under the post. So How awesome is that? Yeah. So on that, Mark Guy said, It was unbelievable. I had tears in my eyes. I've already replayed the try a thousand times in my mind. I thought I'd never get to play with Matty. So it's hard to put into words what that game means to us. I mean, how cool is that story with Matt Guy just being like the polar opposite of his oh, brother and having that great career? And It's so funny. So at the same time, Mark said, my biggest regret is that Matt is going to cop it from the public just because of the things I've done, which just like never came to fruition. And, you know, Guy has said, I've told him to steer clear of nightclubs and you're going to be targeted. So I don't know if he learned from mistakes or was just cut from a different cloth, but none of Mark's baggage followed Matt, which was really good for him. But so that was a nice little happy ending to his Reds career. But with the Reds gone after 1997, he was in need of a new home. And what he really really wanted was a great overall ending with a return to Penrith. So Gaia said, I haven't played a lot of football in the last five years, but I want to rekindle some of that old fire. Penrith will always hold a very special place in my heart, and it would be good to go back and play out my career with Brandy. I think that's a wonderful ending. Yeah, which almost didn't happen. So there were still quite a few people at Penrith who didn't want him back. Mark Levy, the CEO, said, there are people in this organization with influence who would probably say we don't want Mark back. It's not just a case of whether we want him either. The other problem we have is we've got a surplus of back rowers. Mark's on huge money. We're close to our salary cap. Back rowers are not our priority. It's different than taking on someone else's problems. Like it's actually their problem originally. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So they managed to work out an agreement. MG said, you know, I know I'll have to take a pay cut. Next year's contract is not negotiable, but I'd work for match payments beyond that. And so, you know, he was on a very modest contract for his second stint at Penrith. One thing he had in his favor was the coach, Roy Simmons. So obviously someone that had played with Mark and knew him well. The first thing Royce did, which I don't know why every other coach didn't do, was to slap a media ban on him. I mean, that would have solved so many problems. Yeah. Can you have a whole career media ban though? I mean, it's practical. (laughs) So Royce said, we want him to do his talking on the field, not in the papers. He's the sort of bloke who sometimes speaks before he thinks and doesn't need that pressure. He gets so many requests for interviews, talking about the fight with Wally, Ben's death, and what went wrong at Perth and Balmain. We want to put that in the past and get him focused on the year ahead. I couldn't think of a better landing spot and coach for him at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't just the media ban. It was someone who understood him and how to get the best out of him. Yeah. So Roy said, I'm not going to try and change him in any way. Mark has to remember why he's a good footballer in the late 80s and early 90s. I'm trying to remind him of those reasons. And it wasn't because he was talking to the press, back chatting the referees or being sent off. In terms of Royce at the Panthers, you know, as a coach, I always go back to my interview with James Smith when he said the first thing John Lang did at the press conference in 2003 was to acknowledge the work Royce had done to get them there on that day. Yeah, legend. Uh, But as for MG, it really was it this time. He couldn't afford any more slip-ups. He did, you know, have three years at the Panthers, uh, got sent off once, but he got off on that. And otherwise, it was pretty clear sailing, maybe helped by the fact that he spent almost a year out injured. 
reducing his opportunity for suspensions. But regardless, he finished the career off well and, you know, got that kind of emotional maturity at last. And I love this on the actual gouging incident. So this was a quote in 2000. So just after he'd retired, he said, the eye gouging basically changed my whole career. I realized if I could be portrayed as an eye gouger, anything could happen to me. And I realized that with most things, I put myself in the position for it to happen. Like the assault charges, I had four or five over my career. I realized if I hadn't gone out that night, it never would have happened. If I hadn't put my fingers in Chris Quinn's mouth, trying to give him a facial, that wouldn't have happened. (laughs) The amount of trouble that stems from nightclubs and facials in rugby league. Yeah. But I just love that. It's dropping the victim mentality at at last, saying, you know, all right, I still don't think I I gouged him, but I kind of got myself in that position. You know, maybe other guys were coming up to me at the club, but, you know, it was me who carried on with it and made it happen. And so I don't know what it is about Gaia, but, like, I, you know, have the same kind of sympathy and the same kind of, you know, wanting him to make it as all these journalists and all these judiciary panel members had at the time. He's so easy to root for despite the indiscretions. Well, this is a favourite saying of Chris Murphy's as well, the Shakespeare quote, he who never felt a wound jest at my scars. Like, you don't know what these guys' upbringings were like and stuff. It's Yeah. You know, this, there was something wrong with him, right, when he was young. Yeah. He was a lunatic. So as much as he didn't like being called one. So the fact he's turning it around and become an actual – I don't know, this is a great part of the game now. Yeah, totally. So I think we've had Italian proverbs, we've had Shakespeare quotes. <laughs> we've had all sorts of wankery. <laughs> so very cerebral for a discussion about Scott Wilson, Julian O'Neill <laughs> and Mark Geyer. Absolute fraudulent <laughs> quoting by me there. Don't even understand. No, no, no not, not at all. I think it's perfect and I can't really... <laughs> I can't really add to it to go out on. So uh, we will end it there. I loved this research. This was one of my favorite episodes to research. And I think it is just rugby league in excelsis, this story. Let me just give you a bit of a ball washing here because you know how I feel about your work on this research for the whole series. I love it, right? But this one really opened my eyes to how important it is to look at the nuance Mm. in this war because... Every single one of those guys, there's unbelievable nuance that you know people just gloss over, including myself. Yeah, absolutely, and and you don't have to lose the hilarity of it all to realize that. But you know, this is a human story. It's what we're trying to get across. So I hope everyone has enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed talking about it. Uh, and as always, would love to get your thoughts. I'm sure there'll be a lot of them over this one. So we will leave it there. See you later. Bye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.